Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Paul Taylor, Chief Executive Officer and Discretionary Fund Manager at McCarthy Taylor and Personal Finance Writer Kate Bealey. In this week's Portfolio Clinic, we feature a property consultant who wishes to retire in three years and whose portfolio is fairly biased towards house building shares and property. This has done well for the read until now, but he isn't sure what to do regarding the composition of his portfolio going forward. Now, Paul, you were one of the experts who reviewed this. Looking at investors in general, first of all, who've had a good run of house builders, uh, you know, what should they do next? You know, what's the outlook for house builders going forward? It's quite a difficult one to call because there are competing factors. Obviously, there is a shortage of housing, and so there's a great deal of demand. And when there's demand, you'd expect people to do reasonably well. However, the contacts I have in that industry are suggesting to me that the period of real accelerated growth is coming to an end and things are beginning to flatten out. There's a difficulty in getting development land, partly because developers are, to a degree, holding on to it in the hope that values go up and partly because of planning issues and just lack of, of uh, opportunity. And that, that obviously puts a bit of a break on things. Plus, house builders need skilled labour, and there's a great shortage of skilled labour, and that's going to put up their costs and narrow their margins. If the Bank of England raises interest rates later this year, as some people think might happen, will this have an impact on house builders and UK residential property? We're not expecting interest rates to go up significantly for the foreseeable future. So to start with, probably not. It's probably not going to make much difference to a lot of people. But as time goes on and the the interest rate rises are compounded, then possibly it will start to slow down uh, demand. It, it's probably not as as big an impact as, as it could be because of the help to buy schemes and so on that have been offered by the government. But over time, the the impact of interest is bound to slow the, the market down. Yeah, now, now we've been talking about residential property. What about companies related to commercial property? What can we expect from them going ahead? Well, in the same way that property is all about location, 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 it's also about um, what type of commercial property and what the covenants are like, the type of tenants that you've got. Um, we, we all know of uh, town centres where the office, you know, there are shops and offices standing empty. But in London and Birmingham, for example, there's extreme demand for office space because a lot of office space has been converted into a residential property. So it, it's very much a patchy thing. We like commercial property funds that invest in large distribution units because we've got a, a, a big switch towards um, internet shopping and that requires distribution units and um, we think on the other hand with manufacturing struggling still there's not going to be so much demand for industrial units so it's a question of looking under the bonnet and seeing what kind of commercial property you're looking at buying through a fund or uh, if you're doing one directly you've got to choose very carefully what you're buying. Paul what would be some examples of funds that um, have a focus on distribution? Uh, well, we're a big fan of the Tritax Big Box Fund, uh, which has been a very successful fund for us. And uh, that's certainly one that features largely in our portfolios. Yeah, that's a real estate investment trust, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah. But it specialises in distribution units. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's right in the sector that I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, regardless of the current macro situation, what sort of percentage range should investors, let's say, limit their property equity exposure to? 
Well, property, of course, has a lot of advantages in the sense that if you get a good quality property portfolio, it produces nice, steady returns. The downside is it's also very illiquid. So if you want to take your money out, it can be quite difficult to get money out in certain circumstances. So we tend not to have a very large exposure to property in our portfolios. We tend to have, uh, for the more uh, low-risk investors, about 10%. And for those that are looking for more growth and less uh, less stability, 5%. So it's in a range of, of 10% if you're a low-risk investor, up to 5 if you're a less risky investor. I know it sounds inverse, but we see property as a lower risk uh, holding within an overall portfolio. Yeah, presumably high risk investors could look to what, more equities or other yeah, high risk Yeah, greater equity exposure in order to get greater growth. Yeah, okay. Now, the reader featured in the portfolio is actually of a property background. If someone has, you know, specialist knowledge particular sector for example because they work in it do you think that could justify them having a higher weighting to that sector i have a number of clients in uh, the property industry and um, of course having that kind of expertise does give you an edge and that can't be denied and if you see an opportunity and you can use your expertise of course that's something you want to do however there are dangers associated with it for example if you're income and your business and everything else is all to do with property, then all of your investments are to do with property. You're not giving yourself a place of safety in the event of something going wrong. If property starts to get into difficulty and things start to go wrong, you won't have anything to fall back on. An investment portfolio should be something that's there to provide a fallback position when your working life or your business or whatever starts to get into any difficulty. It's something you should be able to fall back on. You can't do that if it's in the same sector that you're working in. You're putting all your eggs in one basket, to use a well-worn phrase. Okay. One other thing as well. Mm. I find that people who invest in the same industries in which they're working have a risk of being overconfident. They become over-convinced of the sector they're working in. And and it's like being too close to something. You don't always see the risks coming until it's too late. Okay, yeah. So um, how could this reader here and other investors diversify their portfolios if they need to cut back exposure to house builders um, and other property-related equities? Well, my, my view, there's, there's a couple of things that they could do. If they're looking for something similar to property that isn't directly property, then an infrastructure fund which invests in government contracts and so on, as most people will probably realise, um, that gives you a, a similar type of return to property and has the same illiquidity problems, but it, it, it is something you can use as an alternative, as a proxy to property. The, the other thing I would say is, at the moment, with volatility being so high, there's, it's a good time to hold cash. We're expecting, at some point, gilts and bond yields to, to rise as the value of those fall, and that could give you an opportunity to start buying gilts and bonds at more appropriate yields. We're not expecting yields to go back to where they were a few years ago when the 10-year gilts were on a 5% yield, but we, we, we are expecting at some point yields to get back to 3%, and that could make them more attractive as a safe part of your portfolio. Okay, so you say cash is justified at the moment, let's say certainly as a, a short-term hold. I certainly would. I think we've got a lot of volatility at the moment. We've got the Brexit, the referendum on UK membership of the European community. We've got the U.S. elections in November. We don't quite know what's going to happen there. I mean, 
heaven forbid, that a certain person should become president of America. It would scare us all a bit. <laughs> and we've got the Middle East conflict coming up. We've got terrorist activity. We've had the bomb today in, in, the, in the Far East. It's, it's, it's one of those times when you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. So that's going to cause a lot of volatility because markets don't like uncertainty. And all these political issues are uncertainties. The economic fundamentals might be fine, but if you get that political uncertainty, the markets will be very, very volatile, and that creates opportunities. So if you've got cash and you can see an opportunity because gilts in rates you know, yields fall, uh, rise rather, or if uh, you see a particular equity holding that's looking very cheap, if you've got cash, you can take advantage of those opportunities. Okay. Are there any other kind of like um, portfolio smoothing assets you could have at the moment um, in view of um, you know all this potential turbulence? Well, I'm I'm a very much a nuts and bolts man. I don't go in for complex financial products. I have a tendency to believe they're designed more to benefit the institutions that that uh, promote them rather than the investor. So I'm I'm very much in uh, cash. Bonds and gilts at the moment, the bonds and gilt prices are too high to get a decent uh, decent return from them. And, and we're a great believer in, in being in equities. But in terms of equities, we're out of the FTSE 100 because it's a global market invested largely in mining stocks and oils and financial stocks. So we prefer to be more in the FTSE 250, which is a broader index, um, giving us much more diversification and less risk. Okay. Now... This reader has nearly 40 holdings, most of them are direct shares with the exception of two, which are investment trusts. Now, for a direct shares portfolio is, let's say, whatever, 35 to 40, is, is that a good number or, you know, what, what would you suggest? Well, it could be if you were investing in one market and in one sector, as I was just saying about the FTSE 100 being so heavily based on global mining and oil stocks and financial stocks. The danger is that your concentration is too great. You see, if you buy a, a, a decent tracker, like a Vanguard a FTSE 250 tracker, you get, a, you get exposure to a much larger number of holdings for the same amount of money. So the danger with having just 40 holdings is that you're still going to have insufficient diversification and you're going to be overexposed to a particular market. The UK isn't the only place to invest. You know, you need to look broader uh, around the world as well. You want to get more diversification in geographical sense. And uh, using collectives enables you to do that. I would have preferred to have about 50 positions if I wanted to be in the UK alone. Then you start to get near the same sort of diversification and risk management we achieve through collectives. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Some useful suggestions there. Now, Brazil, Russia, India and China, the so-called BRICS, were a key area for investors, but more recently emerging markets have gone out of favour and have been engulfed by problems including volatility and a collapse in commodity prices. However, the BRICS still account for a considerable portion of the global population and some would argue cannot be ignored. So, Kate, you've been looking at the investment case for each market. Turning to China, which has been very much at the eye of the storm, um, can you tell us a bit about what's been going on and what effect it's had on funds focused on China? Um, yeah, well, China has been having um, a nightmare since the start of the year. Uh, it's a domestic market, which is very driven by retail investors, so it makes it incredibly volatile anyway. And at the moment, they're driving some incredibly volatile behaviour. It's 
kind of a combination of some bad domestic data, so people being worried about this shift from an investment-led to consumption-driven economy and then how that's working or not working and what kind of slowing Chinese growth would mean for the rest of the world because it obviously has big implications. So people are worried about that. Um, and then the government has been kind of tinkering um, or intervening quite heavily in the market consistently for the past you know, few months. And actually, that's worrying people because it seems a little erratic. And the extent of their involvement has is making people worried. And no one really knows what's going to happen next. I mean, at the moment, things like whether or not a big ban on um, share sales by large investors, whether or not that ban is coming to an end, is making domestic investors unsure of whether they should get out of stocks or not. Um, and generally, people are just very nervous, both inside and outside China, of, of what's going on in the market and what it means for the future. Um, should UK investors still consider investing in China? Um, I mean, I d- wouldn't say, you know, definitely get out of it and definitely don't get out now, obviously, because it's it would be a bad time to exit your holdings um, after they will probably have taken a bit of a beating. Um, I would say there's a difference between the headlines coming out of China and investing as a UK investor, because the worst of this news is very focused on the domestic market, which actually we can't access as UK investors. We access different shares. And so those are less hit by these kind of, yeah, by the worst of this news. So there isn't a sense that, you know, we should definitely not invest in China, but it is a bit of an unnerving place to be right now and a bit of an unpredictable one. Paul, um, do you think China's an area to be avoided? Well, I entirely agree with Kate's remarks. I think she's absolutely spot on. I wouldn't avoid China, but I think the question is about it's about the degree of risk an investor is prepared to take and the amount of exposure they're going to have. China is the second largest economy in the world. It's developing and changing and developing, just as the U.S. did once, and it's likely to overtake the U.S. in time. So for an investor taking a long-term view, you want to have some exposure to that market. But I think your exposure needs to be very modest. I think you need to keep it down to 3 to 5%. And that way, if things don't go particularly as you expect, it's not a big proportion of your portfolio. Okay. And do you advocate um, single country China funds or, let's say, broader regional Asia funds? I, we tend to go for more specific China funds okay. rather than uh, broader Asia. We, we, we tend to treat them as separate areas in our portfolios. We also like India, which we think has a tremendous amount of potential. So in a lot of our portfolios, we'll have some China-related stocks and some uh, India-related funds. Okay, which takes us on to uh, the um, the other three. Um, Kate, you've been looking at them as well. What is the, other, what is the situation with the other three BRICS, Brazil, Russia and India? Um, well, yeah, I guess you've got to divide those really into uh, where things are looking pretty horrible, which is Russia and Brazil and India, which is a little different. Um, so in Russia, we've obviously got uh, the low oil price, which is really impacting the economy. Obviously, it is a market which is pretty much based not entirely on oil, but to a large extent um, on energy, oil and gas. So this $30 a barrel oil is obviously very bad for Russia and they are trying to kind of restructure the economy, but it's taking a long time. And then you've got all of the geopolitical tensions surrounding Russia, which will continue to weigh it down and make things very unpredictable and unnerving. Um, So Russia funds having a terrible time in recent years. I mean, in fact... Over 2015, there was a slightly interesting quirk where many funds and the market did better 
than many other emerging market funds and returned a positive amount. But that was mainly due to the ruble and the dynamic there. So definitely not something to look at and think, oh, Russia's doing okay, because <laughs> I don't think it is. And then in Brazil, uh, you've got Dilma Rousseff, president, facing calls for impeachment, which is pretty dramatic, and the country's in a dire recession as well. Incredible political uncertainty there, and it's going to be very hard to turn that around. So in terms of Brazil and Russia, they're looking distinctly unappealing. But India, a bit of a different situation. People feel quite positive about India. It's got a very good narrative, both in terms of demographics and in terms of uh, what Narendra Modi is trying to do, turning the economy around, making it more focused on manufacturing and really making India, you know, a kind of growth engine of of the emerging world. And people really seem to have faith in that. So I mean, what, what I've done in this in the article is actually break the bricks down and say, right, what's the cheapest? What's the riskiest? Uh, what's the most expensive? And when you look at that, uh, cheapest by far, Brazil and Russia, you can get those at really low prices, kind of a discount to the assets they hold. So, you know, I guess you could look at that and think, mm. <laughs> over the long term, you know, maybe that's worth it. But they're also by far the riskiest, which I guess is no surprise. So it's a reason why they're cheap. And, oh, exactly. Yeah. And then on the flip side, least risky has actually been India, but also definitely the most expensive and it's been the most overhyped so i don't know whether you know that might be a bit of a concern going forward the market did rally a lot uh when narendra modi came in and it's kind of tailed off slightly since then paul you said you liked india as well do you think it's too expensive though oh, well i think uh, for a long-term hold no i think over time it's got a long way to go it's a very underdeveloped uh, economy still i think it, it will uh, it will grow and grow and grow I think the danger with Russia and Brazil is that they're very linked to commodities and oil, which, of course, are not really in demand at the moment. I think in, in the short term, particularly, this, uh, the pricing reflects the fact that they are very uh, reliant on those commodities, and um, that's reflecting in the prices that you're getting for the, those holdings. Do you think investors should totally avoid Russia and Brazil? I personally don't think they justify the risk. I don't see the long-term gain personally I, but i'm a very uh, uh how can i put it a very very skeptical investor I, I like to see why i'm investing and how i really feel that the country is going to develop and whether there's big political risks and i think there are large political risks still in russia i mean we haven't forgotten that russia invaded the ukraine and and that's still bubbling away in the background and they've got problems on their chinese border with the chinese and and so on and um, as uh, Kate was saying, you know, Brazil has also got some political difficulties. OK, well, some scepticism is always healthy, I think, when investing. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much indeed. Speak to you soon. Speak soon. Developed markets have been doing a lot better than emerging markets. But last month, there was frenzied selling in one particular area of the US, the high yield exchange traded fund market. Panic was triggered when a credit fund said it was not going to allow investors to take the money out. Kate First of all, why did the fund stop take investors taking their money out? And why did this cause panic in ETF markets? Well, yeah, this, this fund announced that it was stopping investors taking money out and was winding down. And it was due to concerns over whether it could buy or sell uh, the high-yield bonds, the junk bonds underlying it at prices, which were go weren't going to be too damaging to current shareholders. So, I mean, this is obviously people's worst fear that you, you buy something and then you can't get out of it when, when the market is tanking. 
And in terms of why this caused, caused kind of wider panic in the ECF market, well, for a start, I mean, in fact, saying that, you know, there was this massive spike in trading is not necessarily equivalent to panic. I mean, ETFs are used a lot as a kind of short selling mechanism. And so we'll come on to, to the kind of the dynamic there between people wanting to get out and people actually buying it, using it as a tool. But obviously there were concerns that if if this fund was having such problems with its underlying holdings and being able to buy and sell them and the value of these junk bonds, people are thinking, is this going to be an issue for my ECF as well? Because, you know, obviously they're holding similar things or that's what people were worried about. And the the idea of actually you want to sell your ETF, but the ETF provider can't sell the things that you hold that's a worry. But in fact, these or those kind of fears are unfounded to a large extent, because we're talking about very different things here. This Third Avenue fund, this mutual fund, um, is very different to an ETF and all of the ETFs dealing with high yield bonds. The Third Avenue fund, it, it was dealing with very distressed debt. Some debt wasn't even rated. So it's very high risk and quite an abnormal style of fund. And the thing to remember about ETFs is that because they're listed, they're much more liquid than other mutual funds. And normally, if you want to sell your ETF, someone wants to buy it. And the provider doesn't need to then go and buy and sell the underlying holdings. They just need to, you know, give you the ETF that someone else has sold on a very simplistic level. So, in fact, this isn't something to worry about with ETFs, even though it did cause this big spike in trading. So a high yield bond ETF and something um, investors could consider at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, another thing to say is that obviously this, this was in the US, this bit of news. And the US high yield market is very different to the European high yield market. And actually, people are quite, or managers and analysts seem kind of cautiously positive about European high yield. It could benefit from European recovery. Credit quality tends to be kind of reasonably high so there's not that fear and actually it's quite cheap at the moment so yeah some people are quite positive about high yield but um it's obviously a bit of a volatile area okay so something for perhaps high risk appetite long-term yeah, horizon investors yeah, yeah and just very different depending on you know us european depending on the kind of high yield okay. you're looking at i guess so picking the right one as mm. well okay thank you kate That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Paul Taylor, Chief Executive Officer at McCarthy Taylor, and Kate Bailey. You can read more on allocating to property, the BRICS and ETFs in this week's Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening.